Hello and welcome to Inside Modular, the podcast of commercial modular construction brought to you by the Modular Building Institute. Welcome everyone. My name is John McMullen. I'm the marketing director here at MBI. Today I'm talking with Julian Bowron, founder and chief technology officer at Metalock. Julian is here to talk about the art and science of modular construction innovation and to tee us up for his upcoming presentation at the 2023 World of Modular. Julian, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, so tell me about yourself, Julian. What's your background? Um, well, many years ago, back in the late 70s, uh, I studied uh, industrial design and, in fact, uh, started a career as a, as a sculptor uh, and an artist and then uh, rapidly moved back to my roots, which really lay in tool and die making, which is what I trained for in, in high school and trade school. And then, uh, you know, have, have really, it's just been kind of a, a logical ramp up in a way. Uh, I started off in industrial prototyping at the very beginning, uh, working on actually systems furniture in many cases. Hmm. Uh, did a certain amount of work in, uh, in trade shows and, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit of product development work, everything from, you know, hospital beds to uh, uh, defense related equipment, like border security and surveillance stuff. Uh, and then uh, really through the 2000s, uh, we started to execute some lots of large scale uh, offsite fabricated architectural projects. Uh, and that work took us to you know, China and the Middle East, um, and extensive work actually on the island of Manhattan hmm. and across uh, the United States and Canada. And, uh, and then by, by 2010, I was running a full tilt volumetric modular business. Uh, it was actually called the Feature Walters Prefabricated Architectural Division. That's a mouthful. Uh, which we, yeah, we, so we shortened it to FIWA PAD. And, uh, and in fact, I just uh, was working with that group again for, for the last year and a half, uh, helping them again with, with detailing and, uh, of their various projects. And then out of that um, came you know, the, the whole experience with uh, VectorBlock and then uh, the, the most recent incarnation, uh, Metalog. Uh, so that's, that's really the story. It's, it's been a, you know, you could say it's the transition from uh, really, you could say 2D to 3D panelization and offsite construction, and then all the way to full volumetric. So kind so, of a logical progression. So you mentioned, uh, I think it was back in the 2000s, you started in the offsite uh, industry. How did you discover Offsite modular uh, construction was that something yeah. you were introduced to uh, professionally, or did you know about it personally beforehand? You know, it, it's is it Charlie Daniels, the, the the you know the violin story guy? Mm -hmm. You know, I was visited by a devil one night, and uh, he uh, you know did a deal with me. Um, no, the, the the reality is that I by by around two thousand, I have to say, I'd had enough experience in the conventional construction industry. And this is in, again, in jobs in, in New York City on, you know, luxury hotels and uh, work, you know, in a, in a wide range of uh, situations that I just really saw, as many have seen, how defective the whole process is, how adversarial, how poorly planned, how the, the drawings that, came, that were provided to us really, in many cases, didn't represent a buildable reality. And I, I just was really uh, strong, strongly believed that there was a, a better way to do it. And, uh, and so it really got started when we started using 3D modeling software. So in, in 2001, we got our first SolidWorks seat and, uh, and we were actually using 3D AutoCAD as well. 
And as soon as we were able to design something and then issue it straight to, uh, you know, water jet uh, cutting equipment and lasers and routers and so on, and then have those parts just slot together very perfectly, you know, the, the, it wasn't lost on any of us. And we had, you know, approximately 100 employees at the time uh, that this was vastly superior to, you know, cutting and fitting and that we could create large sub-assemblies that could be shipped complete to sites and assemble successfully with other large sub-assemblies to create the finished product. So, and, and really, I would say that customers drove it a lot. You know, we, we worked for a lot of the big uh, design and architecture firms, uh, Gensler, most noteworthy among them. You know, the quality of our delivery, the speed of our delivery, the precision of our delivery, which was, you know, due to these improved working methods, uh, caught, caught people's eye. And, and we just really, honestly, never looked back from that point. You know, we just got a string of really, really great jobs. You're often billed as uh, an inventor, which I think uh, is very cool. T tell me about inventing. It seems very complex to me. Um, wh what inspires you to say, aha, this thing needs inventing? What, what sparks that uh, a little bit of creativity in you? Well, so there is an element of formal training there. So, you know, my, my library at home is stuffed full of books on, uh, on design and especially on industrial design. And, uh, you know, what you're taught in industrial design uh, is to analyze a problem, you know, create a problem definition, you know, go through a substantially formal process to arrive at a solution. And in the conventional construction world, there really was no room for that. You know, you're handed this, the, these drawings and you said, you know, try to make this. The reverse is you're handed a problem and you're asked to solve it. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, I, I found that as soon as we focused on the design process, uh, that it really freed us up to, to become problem solvers. And, and then with, with supportive clients, I got to say, the Walters Group was one of them. Uh, you know, a, a company working for the U.S. Department of Defense was another, and so on. Uh, we were able to develop the, the 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 design to a very high degree of completion, such that you can then apply for a patent. You know, where where the where the solution is really unique, you can apply for a patent, and and if if it truly is unique, you obtain a patent. Uh, and so, I would say that the transition to inventor from just some, somebody that was simply solving, you know, quotidian day-to-day -day problems came through our adoption of these sophisticated design processes and clients who were willing to support us to a, to a, a high degree of design completion that, that justified patenting the result. Got it. Is there yeah. a, is there a, you mentioned the, the, the formal process that you go through to sort of identify a problem and create a solution are there steps within that that you follow rigorously? Like absolutely, I, I would say it's a very uh, you could almost call it a strict process. And to the to the extent that you deviate from the process by eliminating a step, um, you know the results are never going to be as good. And and uh, and by the way, it doesn't mean that this is a tedious process or a super time consuming process. You can you can achieve a lot in in just a few days or weeks. Um, it, especially if you have a team that you can, you know, send components of the problem out to and then, and then receive results back. So, so the steps really are, you know, 
the first step, it's, this is, I think, I think people will find this interesting. The very, the first step is you want to be working with somebody that's tried to do this before and has, is not satisfied with the result. They've either absolutely failed or somewhat failed and, and they understand what's happened. When you start a process, a design process with somebody that's never done it before, you're starting utterly cold, you, you have no point of reference mm. and you don't have a good idea of what's, what may not work. Mm-hmm. which actually makes it harder. So it's actually easier to work with somebody who's done it before and had varying degrees of success. And then, you know, the, uh, we do, I do a lot of hand sketching. Actually, uh, you know, I would say that that's my major contributor contribution to the process is I, I hand sketch things, 3D sketches, sometimes color the different materials, and then give that to one of the members of my modeling team. They create a computer model of it. We start off with a massing diagram, you know, what we call a jello model. Uh, and then uh, pres- and then involve the client, get them to give their comments right then and there, and then proceed to add layers and layers of detail with getting feedback at each phase. Um, then go into computer simulation of loads and loading, you know, finite element analysis, all that stuff. And then uh, and then you know, there's a, a decorative phase. I, I, I would say a styling phase that occurs. It, it can be integrated into the process or occur towards the end. You know, uh, something that's, you know, brilliantly and beautifully designed, but is ugly is is as useless as something that's badly designed. Hmm. Um, and then uh, and then, you know, in the and then we often build prototypes. I would say in 90 percent of the case, we build a physical prototype of the product. Um, you know, pro- projects seldom get canceled, by the way. I, I can say that I'm, I'm proud of that fact. We we've typically vetted the, the whole concept before we start. So. So then we move into a prototype, uh, we evaluate the prototype, we rework the, the original computer model and the design, and then we may build a production version that's you know notionally fully rationalized. And that can be either the end of the process where it's all turned over to the client, or we in fact go on to manufacture that product on behalf of the client. So, um, so there, there's, yes, the substantially formal process. So can you describe some of the products that you've created and, and brought to market? So the, uh, the first group of products that I worked on uh, were, were all the industrial designer was somebody else, but I, to some extent, contributed details uh, or, uh, or, or in many cases, you know, substantial components of the design. So among the first, as I mentioned earlier, were systems furniture projects. Uh, some of the clients were people like Technion and steel case and so on. Um, we then did a bunch of medical work. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the company. I believe they were absorbed back in the 90s, uh, but it would be these hospital beds that put the patient into a variety of uh, specialized positions that are appropriate for various types of surgeries mm-hmm. uh, and medical procedures. Um, then the, the, uh, there was drafting instruments. We did a bunch of work for a Celti Letraset uh, on, on various drafting instruments. And then actually my first real foray was into, uh, kiosks, interactive kiosks. And we did a a large number. We did the largest deployment of, uh, automatic ticket machines in North America at the time for, uh, a national theater chain owned by, uh, Paramount. And that led into a whole bunch of work, uh, in check-in and check-out equipment for freight terminals, um, uh, maintenance, like, uh, uh, maintenance database access 
devices for nuclear power stations and rail maintenance facilities uh, and so on. And actually, interestingly, that business was wiped out by competition from China. Um, you know, we were we were charging, say, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for a specific uh, piece of equipment and uh, not copies, but, you know, similar equipment with mm -hmm. similar functionality started showing up from China at less than half the price and just blew us out of the water. Mm. Um, interesting, you know, I'm not a huge protectionist, but, uh, you know, despite having been, say, a victim of that process. Um, and then, then uh, really then by the mid 2000s, I was solidly into construction uh, related technology. So we developed uh, cassette ceiling systems, um, basically, you know, converting walls and ceilings into like integrated circuits almost with the wiring and ductwork as part of the structure. Uh, we did a bunch of module handling equipment, module assembly equipment. Um, uh, at, at that time, actually, was the time we did the uh, what we called the humane minefield, which was a border surveillance uh, system uh, that was deployed in, in actually desert regions. Hmm. It could distinguish between, uh, you know, people with hostile intent and and like a shepherd tending a flock of sheep or something wow. so that you know people in lieu of a minefield you know um and uh and we did a situation room actually for the national reconnaissance organization with a bunch of specialized equipment in it so and, and then and then you know came the, the let's call it the structural modular era uh which started off with the work for uh, feature Walters and the work on the bow in Calgary and progressed into vector block and then into the current work with Metalock. That's quite the gamut. Yes. Of things. Yeah. You know, I'm now older. So each of those phases is a good decade, you know, interestingly. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, there'd be a learning curve at the beginning of each decade, followed by an execution phase, followed by a phase where we were uh, doing, you know, well, uh, because we understood that category of, stuff and then it would become obsolete you know in, in some cases the the approach we were taking well uh what can you tell me about the role of technology uh in modular construction today which i guess is the the phase of your life that we are in uh before we all become obsolete what's what's yeah, yeah. the what what how is technology affecting modular construction right now well i i would say uh, and I'll say that I'm, I'm proud of the fact that back in, in the 2000s, you know, I, I really, uh, it became abundantly clear to me that precision was really important. And, and so the aerospace industry and the automotive industry and the watchmaking industry and the appliance industry, you know, the furniture industry, everybody by, by you know, uh, the 1950s, I guess, had figured out that um, cutting something accurately, machining something accurately, uh, conceiving of good connection details made work go together more easily. So the assembly line, uh, you know, is a direct product of, of interchangeable components, as we all know. And that's an idea from the 20s. Mm -hmm. So what was incredible is you'd be looking at modular buildings, you know, in the, in the 2000s. And, you know, the wood frame modular buildings, in many cases, they would have inch uh, tolerances or two inch tolerances and so on. And this led to all kinds of uh, difficulties in, in waterproofing the buildings and putting facades on the buildings. And, uh, and so it led up to my experience on 461 Dean, the, uh, what is still the tallest building in, the, in the, the tallest modular building in the Western Hemisphere and was until recently the tallest modular building around. 
And, and that was a, I think 28 story building, something like that. And it, it stalled about eight stories out of the ground due to tolerance accumulation. And I had already, I had already seen the impact of tolerance accumulation <clears throat> on a variety of uh, super tall tower projects that I worked on. Uh, one of them was a 180 story building in Saudi Arabia, uh, which uh, at the time was the second tallest building in the world. And I ran a team that uh, planned the erection of the top of that building. Hmm. Uh, the erection of the structural steel. And you, you know, you'd, you'd see, you know, two parallel stacks of columns and beams and so on rising, and they'd be gradually getting out of whack with each other. And then they'd bring it back in with shims and then gradually get out of whack with each other and then bring it back in with shims. And there's this constant process of surveying, shimming, surveying, shimming, reaming, surveying, shimming, reaming. And, you know, you can't put up a modular building that way. It's just so completely violates the whole concept of uh, Lego assembly and so on. And so, uh, so, so I would say the number one issue that the modular industry continues to face, uh, but, and it was worse 10 years ago, is a lack of appreciation for the value of precision in the components that are made in the factory and assembled to produce the module. And, and only by eliminating all of, you know, fiddle faddle and the, you know, craftsmanship and that sort of thing, can you actually get to the point where you're running a real assembly line? Mm -hmm. And that assembly line has to extend from the factory to the site. And I think this is a big missing factor. People can think that, okay, woof, I got through making a module, I'm good to go. But if that module doesn't assemble at the site in the same way that a car door goes into a car on the assembly line, you've failed. So, so I would say that that continues to be the biggest challenge in the modular industry is a lack of appreciation of the value of precision. The, the fact that, as I've said many times, precision really is cheaper than imprecision. So people that think that precision is expensive and difficult and so on, ignore completely the fact that imprecision is far harder to deal with than precision. So tell me about uh, your upcoming presentation at, at World of Modular. From your session description, it sounds like you are going to be sharing some some very helpful ideas about the challenges that you've seen. Yeah, I, actually, the the way I've kind of presented it is uh, is you know doing the math, something like that. So you know, as an example, a question that I'm frequently asked is, how big should my factory? And, uh, you know, if I, if I want to produce a thousand modules a year, how much space do I need and so on? And it, it's actually quite easy to figure that out once you take into account all the variables that go into that math. And so, you know, those are, those are the types of, I, I, I will say I'm partly motivated by watching uh, people spend, you know, 50, $100 million on, on modular factories and then not get productivity that corresponds to that level of investment. And I think in many cases, it's due to a failure to do the math. Hmm. Uh, so, so the, and, and so, and by the way, you know, all of this is, is publicly available information, interestingly, or has come to me through uh, literally, you know, dozens of uh, consulting gigs with, with people in, you know, variety of, of settings. And, uh, and the problem, you, you know, Right now, the modular industry, especially in North America, is kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, with, with few exceptions, the companies are, are relatively small. And they're always starting from, a, from essentially the same spot. You know, how big should my factory be? Should I roll the modules along 
on wheels or should I have them on casters or should they be on air bearings or should I, you know, move them around the room with a crane or, you know, what, you know, basic questions like that. And so I want to take people through how, how you figure out which of those approaches makes the most sense for a specific situation. Hmm. That sounds like a, an excellent, excellent use of someone's time at a big conference. Uh, so speaking of big conferences and, and you being at World of Modular, what can you tell me about your previous World of Modular experiences? I've seen you there a few times. Um, for, for a potential attendee, someone who's never been, what, what can you share about uh, your experiences there and why they should take the leap and, and, and join us in Las Vegas in, in, in March? Um, well, it's a very well-run conference. I, I say that, and I've been to a lot of shows uh, in a lot of different industries as a result of this you know, long story I told earlier about all the different things I've done. Um, and so it's just a particularly well-run conference. It also has a bit of a, uh, like a homecoming week uh, atmosphere to it because our industry really fundamentally is small. Um, that's not a negative. I, I'd say it's, let's say it's even uh, a tight knit group. And so the chance to interact with your peers and, and the, you know, the people, the friendships that you've made over the past decades and, and the people that you, you, you have come to respect and know, um, you know, that's really invaluable. Uh, I, I would say that's my primary reason for going is actually just to, 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 to see people in person and, and, and chat, uh, you could say gossip. Um, but also there is a, a lot to be learned. I've certainly, I've found that a number of the sessions have been extremely valuable to me personally. Uh, I can say, for example, you know, uh, hearing Michael Howe or Huff, uh, the Hawk. Irish fellow who, hmm? Hawk, I believe. Yeah, the, the engineer of the of the Vision Tide yep. projects. Yeah. Aha, yep. uh -huh, that's interesting. Good pronunciation, good Irish pronunciation. So yeah, I mean, hearing him speak was just absolutely fascinating and very inspiring. And the guy is really brilliant and he's done some tremendous work. Um, and 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 there's been, of course, many others. So yeah, so that I I and by the way, I really enjoy Anirban Basu, the, the you know, your keynote, who is the world's funniest economist. He is. <laughs> Anirban's awesome. He's, awesome. He's just awesome. And I, I really look for, I would, I would travel a long way to hear him speak. Uh, and yeah, so there, I, I, the one piece of advice I have for people is stay away from the free drinks. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> um, what is, what's next for you after, after, uh, your, your trips before Vegas, after Vegas, what's on the horizon for 2023? Well, it seems to me I'm on my way to the middle East, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, there's some, some very, very, you know, as they say, giga projects going on over there uh, that have certainly been on my radar for a number of years now. Um, that, that I would say would be the primary uh, thing. Other than that, you know, I continue to run, I have a research and development shop here in Toronto. Uh, we continue to perfect uh, the product, the tooling that produces the product. Uh, we've received some, some really terrific commissions for, for new equipment and for new products uh, recently. So there's no shortage of things to be done. Here's a, a question I like to ask people. I think uh, I've been excited to ask you this question in particular, given your history and your status as an inventor, you're the only inventor I know. What, what do the next three to five years look like for the industry? What's, what do you think is gonna change? What do you think is the next wow. new or big thing? What are, we, what are we looking forward to? Well, it's, it's a, you know, that's a really good question. And, um, and 
and it shouldn't be such a good question. You know, it, it, we should all have a clearer picture of where this is headed. So I, 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 can, I can answer that question best, I would say, in the following way. I recently had a, a call with uh, some senior government officials and, uh, and the staff of their, of their respective offices regarding the uh, affordable housing problem that I think is common to almost all of the world's jurisdictions. And uh, you know, here in Ontario, notionally, we have a shortage of a million homes uh, and a plan to build, you know, and the government is talking about plans to build one and a half million homes in the near future and so on. Um, I think we, you know, it, it's preaching to the choir uh, when speaking with people in the modular industry to, to talk about the skilled labor shortage and so on. It's clear that that's reached a crisis level. And, and yet in our province, there is really no plan and no foreseeable mechanism by which something like 50,000 or 100,000 modular homes get built a year. Hmm. In fact, it continues to be the case that the most, you know, the, the plants in North America with the greatest amount of output are, are hitting 2,000 modules a year from a single site. And, you know, so interestingly, in the Middle East, we're working on factory designs with an output of 50,000 modules per annum. Wow. And these are realistic plans. I mean, with the equipment itemized and 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 costed, and the you know the cost of borrowing the money, and investor repaying investors all taken into account. And so, I hope, I hope, I have to say, that the next uh, five years are all about getting to a scale where we're making a meaningful difference in housing the many people who are currently lacking adequate housing. And, and I do strong, continue to strongly believe that, that manufactured housing, that industrialized construction is the only way to achieve that. And I also, I would say, know that uh, government and industry have to work together to make that happen. You know, neither government nor industry will be able to do that on their own. And so seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the efforts that the Modular Building Institute is taking to to see that that cooperation happens is very heartening. Uh, and I think every one of us individually has to, who are interested in solving the affordable housing crisis have to, have to be looking in the, you know, have to be emulating what you're doing in our own uh, circles of, of contacts. Well, thank you, Julian. I, I appreciate that answer. It's a good answer. When I came up with the question, I had no idea it was such a great question, but I've, I've asked it of many people and I continue to get great answers. So I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in Las Vegas and I'm looking forward to your session. Um, thanks once again. Likewise. Uh, I, I very much look forward to seeing you again and the, and the whole team from the Modular Building Institute. My name is John McMullen and this has been another episode of Inside Modular, the podcast of commercial modular construction. Until next time.